You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Amazon's acclaimed crime series Bosch is back for a third season. For Detective Harry Bosch, solving crimes isn't a job, it's an obsession that can claim your soul. After the long search for his mother's killer leads him to a police cover-up, Bosch now finds himself implicated in the death of a serial killer he's investigating. Starring Titus Welliver as Bosch and based on the best-selling novels by Michael Conley, stream season three now on Amazon Prime. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime. And this week, we'll hear from Legal Siri on the latest paper dump in the Adnan Syed appeal. Then we'll talk about Investigation Discovery's latest attempt at a, quote, high-end production, Casey Anthony, an American murder mystery, plus an update in the missing Richard Simmons saga. So joining me right now is the host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, my true crime co-author and real-life husband, the heavily medicated Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Rebecca. That cough you had like two weeks ago, it has not gone away, has it? No, it hasn't. I, I'm going to try out some lozenges here just to... Uh, yes, because what's the rule? If I cough, you will cut me is what I, will. I was told. Cut you out. Cut you out completely. I'll no, just I, edit, I, I'll edit that, your shit. That's a difference. Oh. Yeah, that isn't how I interpret it. <laughs> I will cut you when, when, it's, when it's private and not on a microphone. Uh, on the microphone, I'll just cut you out. How about that? That's cutting. Also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and recently dubbed Squirrel Terminator, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. I'm moving to chipmunks this week. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Chipmunk arms. (laughs) Yep. And rounding out the panel is the very talented noir novelist with the sometimes dubiously negative outlook, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Namaste. (laughs) That's very zen of you, Toby, or yogi, or whatever that is. It's like a yoga thing, right? I'm super zen. You are. That's that's the first word I think about when I think about you. I just I just picture two squirrel arms put pressed together (laughs) at the hands. (laughs) Namaste. Well, first a programming note. Next week is school vacation week here in New Hampshire. What does that mean for you? It means that we're not making a podcast next week. So we will be back in two weeks. In the meantime, if you want to hear some more great story analysis, a little bit of me and Kevin without Toby and Laura, which is the downside, but you can download These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast. Right now, you can listen to our conversation with Irish radio personality Chris Green. And in a couple days, you will hear comedian Pat Dixon from New York City Crime Report. And when we're back in two weeks, we are going to be talking about that Netflix series you've all been tweeting to us about 13 reasons. We're going to try to watch as many episodes as we can uh, in the next two weeks and talk about it next time we come back to this podcast. All right. So Toby Ball, during our discussions of Shit Town, one little task that we never were able to do was talk about some of the Amazon items that our listeners purchased using the link on crimewriterson.com. Now, I sent you a list today. Did you get that list? I did. Did you choose a couple of items that you would like to highlight that our listeners purchased on that Amazon link? I chose more than a couple. All right. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what those are. Kevin, should, right. I, should I start the, should I the yeah, music? Yeah, press the little orange one. All right. All right. Go ahead, Toby. So we'll start off with True Kid Yumberry Scented Bubble Pods 8 Count. 
I have no idea what that is. What's a yumberry? It sounds um, like something somebody would say, like, come into my van and look at my yumberry. <laughs> sounds like something you'd lick on the wallpaper at Willy Wonka's factory. The yumberries I, I like taste that, like, like yumberries. So speaking of yummy delights, yeah? Campbell's Chunky Soup Beer and Cheese with uh. Beef and Bacon, <laughs> 18.8 ounce. Oh my God, it's like such a lumberjack meal right there, huh? <laughs> I like yeah. it. How many cans? Well, just one 18.8 ounce one. They don't they don't have quantity here. Huh. 18.8 ounces. It's probably like concentrated too. I'm guessing it ends up I being got... 36 ounces. Family size beer and cheese soup. Sports and outdoors, saber red pepper spray, police strength with durable pink key case, finger grip, quick release key ring, 25 bursts. Up to Ooh. five times other brands. I think it's 10-foot spray radius or something. 10-foot <laughs> Laura, that sounds like something you would have in your purse. Yes or no? Well, I used to, and I have to tell you, the only reason I carried it when I was doing investigations was dogs. Mm-hmm. I was Because you'd go in places with sketchy dogs. But then I became more concerned it was going to accidentally go off in my car while I was driving, so I just got rid of it. Fun fact, I once got pepper sprayed by another dog owner on my uh, little oh. trail walk in the woods here in town. It's true. I was pissed. Oh. <laughs> Why for? I don't know. That's a whole other story for a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's for my new podcast spinoff that I'm starting called Dogcast, which I've decided is an excellent idea, by the way. Mm. What else you got, Toby? Yoga, meditation, woman, figure, chakra, namaste, ohm, silver tone, dangle earrings. <laughs> so I think that was like uh, search optimization. They got in all those key terms. It's like one of our um, most hippie listeners purchased that. Liver cleanse supplement, 22 herbs, support and detox, milk, thistle, extracts, psilomarin, beet, artichoke, dandelion, chicory root, bioscience, nutrition. I thought oh. they were going to be 22 for a second there. Yeah. It's too well, many. It, it, Obviously, it 21 was on. not enough. <laughs> they're just hitting the highlights on that one. Kevin, do you want to introduce the first segment in tonight's podcast? Sure. It is a true crime podcast update. All right, so I hurt my throat so bad. You better not cough because I will cut you. I mean, cut you out. I mean, <laughs> edit you. <laughs> it hurts so much. Dan Taberski may not have found him during the Missing Richard Simmons podcast, but now the ethereal celebrity has been in the news. Laura, WTF is going on with Richard Simmons right now? So much more than you can even imagine. So after three years this week, we get word that Richard Simmons has left his house finally um, to go to the hospital. And his rep, Michael Catalano, states that Richard was hospitalized on Monday at an undisclosed location in California after a few days of battling severe indigestion and discomfort while eating. We agreed it was best for him to seek treatment. So this comes just after, I can't remember if we talked about this new merchandising deal that came out for Richard. No, we didn't. So a few weeks ago, word came out that Richard may be about ready to come out of hiding. And this came as there was word that there was a merchandising deal that he had supposedly signed a lucrative deal Mm -hmm. with prominent brand and talent, which would give them rights to represent him for licensing, merchandising and endorsement opportunities. Conveniently, Michael Catalano is also involved in that enterprise. So he is not only Simmons's manager, but also the co-founder of the company that has obtained the global rights to sell Simmons products, which I think that's a little sketchy myself. Yeah, that is. That's double dipping, right? (laughs) Yeah, but the company does represent some other people, including Madonna's Hard Candy. Mm -hmm. Little known fact. (laughs) 
Madonna has hard candy. No, is that a makeup brand? Hard candy? I'm not sure. But this isn't the biggest news. So I was excited to tell you guys about this. And then I got another news alert on Richard Simmons this afternoon that Richard Simmons has posted on Facebook today. Oh. <gasps> did you look? What did he post? I haven't heard okay, this yet. So I'm going to read you the whole thing. And I want you all, as I read this at first, I was all excited. And then I remembered what Dan said about when Richard actually posted something or one of the other people posted ah, something for right. him. So this is what it says. Hello to everyone who has shown concern for me and sent their good wishes. You will never know how much it means to me. Aren't you sick of hearing and reading about me? Question mark, exclamation, <gasps> LOL. Well, by now, you know that I'm not, quote, missing, just a little under the weather. I'm sure I will be feeling good and back home in a couple of days. This has reminded me that when you need help, you can't be afraid to reach out and ask for it. We all think we should always be able to solve our problems by ourselves, and sometimes it's just bigger than we are. I reached out, and I hope you will, too. I'm sure there are people in your life who love and care for you and would do anything to help you with the challenges you face. Just knowing you care has already made me feel better. Hope to see you soon, exclamation. Love, Richard. Just one exclamation oh, point? Yeah. It's totally not Richard. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I, don't think. I feel yeah. better. No, yeah. Period? Didn't he say like when Richard actually wrote something, there was like all these dot, dot, dots. Yeah, and yeah, ellipses. yeah. I feel yeah. like, I feel like the first, the, when you first did the punctuation, I was like, oh, that sounds like Richard. And then it didn't. There was a great tweet today from one of our listeners, Jeffrey Baker. And I'd love you all to uh, take a stab at answering this question from Jeffrey. What's more likely, that Up and Vanished helped solve Tara Grinstead's case or that missing Richard Simmons flushed out Richard Simmons. <laughs> Laura, what do you think? I think that the merchandising deal flushed out Richard Simmons. Well, do you <laughs> or think the merchandising out his rep. Right, but do you think that the merchandising deal had to have been tied to the success of the podcast, right? I think the podcast helped it. I mean, you know, how could it not? He's in the news, he's everywhere. It's the top podcast, so uh, you know, I think it helped it. Definitely. What do you think, Toby? Like, I don't know if Richard Simmons is really going to show his face. I mean, merchandising and stuff like that, he can just be passive on. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's more likely that Missing Richard Simmons sort of created the enough attention that he felt like it was, it was time to kind of cash in on it. Well, he felt like, like there was a relevance to him in the culture, right, Kevin? Yeah, I think it was almost like a proof of concept that he is still marketable, and that people still care about him, even though he had nothing to do with the podcast. You know, sort of a public temperature check. Yeah, Richard Simmons. I still like that guy. So why not strike while the iron's hot? And Toby's right. Richard may not have to do anything. He may not have to go on TV and hawk anything. Right. Just has to lend his name and so sign the check. What you're saying is we need a merchandising deal, like very badly, right? <laughs> you and I? Yeah, because then well, we can just be down do here in this closet. Get... <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, we, we do sometimes get emails from like TV production companies about like, want to make a TV show out of your podcast? And I'm like... If you could actually see us. <laughs> was that Molly? <laughs> What's that? Who, was it Molly? Who, I, that was one of the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like a merchandising deal might be the way to go. I don't know. Closets, 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 closets. <laughs> I feel like, do you remember, guys, do you remember a few years ago, and I'm not saying she was ever uncool because I've always been a, a big fan, but remember a few years ago when like Betty White was everywhere? Mm -hmm. It was sort of this resurgence of somebody who was... Always beloved, always brilliant, always great, but definitely someone that like the current generation maybe was unfamiliar with. 
And then she was everywhere. She was like always sunny in Philadelphia. She was on a ton of TV commercials, like very marketable. She like had her moment. And mm-hmm. I would say still having her moment to some extent. I feel like this podcast has really brought forth like another opportunity for Richard Simmons. So if he wants it, if he he had to have signed a piece of paper at some point. Right. Yeah. But he doesn't have to do anything more than sign the paper. What do you think, Laura? Right. I think that the rep um, has his hands in more of this than we know. Yeah. That's me being suspicious. It seems a little odd to me, but that's all I'm going to say. I, I don't like the double dipping aspect of it. That's the, their job. No, but this is the thing. When you have a rep, the yeah. person who is representing you in a deal, and I feel this way, and we've talked about this around other things, that rep should not be making money from the deal as well. They should be making money from representing you or from having a stake in a product. They should not be doing both. To me, that that's a little bit weird. Anyway, all right, well, let's move on to the next segment of our podcast. Kevin, we have another... True Crime Podcast Update. Well, as you know, I am a little bit... Bored is not the right word. I'm a little bit throw my hands up in the air right now around the Adnan Syed case and all of just like the filings and the stuff and the paperwork and the wheels do keep turning on this case. And I'm not saying that I don't think it should come to resolution or continue going. It's just that like the process and the system to me is infuriating. Mm-hmm. So with the defense now responding to the state's petition, you know, each argument that both sides are making is backed up with lots of previous case law. There's one part of the appeal now that will be based on what amounts to a gut feeling, and it has to do with the cell tower evidence. Now, this is something that we read uh, in a blog written by somebody we know, legal professor Colin Miller, a.k.a. Legal, Legal Siri, Siri, who's also an undisclosed. And uh, Kevin, you reached out to him to get an overview of some of the more important parts of the defense's paperwork. And um, I'm just going to play it. Here's what that sounded like. So, Colin, where are we on the, the timeline in the Adnan Syed appeal? We're getting towards the end of April and we should hear again from the state. Is that correct? Right. The state's final brief should come toward the end of this month. And then the oral arguments before the Court of Special Appeals is scheduled for right now, June, although that could be pushed back. Now, about a week or two ago, the defense got to dispute the state's assertion in their appeal. And part of it had to do with jury instructions. In your blog, you described this as a legal bombshell. Can you tell us what you meant by that? Yeah, so what happened here was we had the cell tower testimony by Abe Ronowitz at trial And the judge said, based upon certain issues with the evidence, he could only testify about the pings and his drive tests to essentially corroborate what Jay said. It wasn't independent evidence about the location of Adnan's phone. But then at the end of trial, when the defense was supposed to ask for this limiting instruction, telling the jurors you can only use it for this limited purpose, she never did so. And so the jurors never heard that limitation on the evidence. So the jury is only supposed to decide whether the cell tower evidence backed up Jay's testimony. They're not supposed to look at that and say, uh, yeah, the phone was there. That proves that Nan was in the park. Is that a distinction without a difference? Well, the question is, practically speaking, does it matter? In other words, would the jurors, in fact, compartmentalize and be able to say, well, we can use it for this purpose and not for that? And practically speaking, probably not much difference from a legal perspective, though, What courts always say is we assume that jurors follow jury instructions. And what that means here is 
most of the pings didn't match Jay's testimony. And so the defense should have been able to argue to the jury, look, this is a case where you can't use these pings independently. And if you're looking at it to either bolster or undermine Jay's credibility, in fact, the majority of these pings don't match his story. And that just didn't happen. So as much as it is a matter of fact about where the pings were and what that meant, it's basically a matter of law that Gutierrez, again, should have known better and should have worked to get the judge to give that instruction. Yeah, exactly. And I think practically speaking, if you talk to the average juror and try to explain what I'm trying to explain, it really wouldn't be a huge deal in their actual thought process. But right, as you're saying, if you're looking at it from a legal perspective, we have to act under the assumption the jurors followed and respected that jury instruction, which means in terms of the appeal, that's a pretty strong argument for the defense because it refutes one of the main arguments by the state. Now, at the PCR, Adnan's guys went in with basically three major arguments, and they had to prevail on just one in order to get the reversal. And This is the state's turn. Do they have to run the whole table in order to get a reversal of Judge Welch's decision? They need to win each and every one of the issues. As I've written in my blog, though, there are sort of sub-issues for each issue. And if they win one of those sub-issues, they win a larger issue. So, for instance, on the cell tower pings that we're just discussing, there are basically three slash four questions. One is, could Judge Welch even hear the argument? Two is, did Adnan waive the cell tower argument? And then three slash four is, was Gutierrez unreasonable in her handling of the pings by not using the AT&T cover sheet? And then second, was that prejudicial to the defense? So the state needs to win that issue overall, but if it won any one of those four sub-issues, then it would win the appeal. If the state just wins on one of those issues or the sub-issues, does that turn back the clock again? Or does the state still have to prevail on some part on each of these issues. Right, on some part of each. So those are the four issues with the cell tower pings. There's two issues with Asia McLean. One was Gutierrez unreasonable in failing to contact her, and two was that prejudicial. So state needs to win overall on that issue, which it can do by winning one of those two sub-issues. The third is a little odder. That is whether Gutierrez was unreasonable in failing to seek a plea bargain. That, again, the state would have to win on either unreasonable performance or prejudice. But in terms of that issue, it's a little bit unclear if Adnan won on that issue on appeal, what exact relief he would get. Right. Well, you've written that, you know, there's one sticky issue that the court has to deal with regarding Adnan's waiver regarding the cell tower claim. It seems like of of all the evidence that's considered in the appeal, this is the one that's most open to sort of interpretation, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's any number of ways that I could see the court addressing this. What Judge Welch found was that the Sixth Amendment, Bill of Rights, Constitution, says you have the right to counsel. Part and parcel of that is you have the right to the effective assistance of counsel. And he construed this as a fundamental right that can only be waived by what's known as a knowing and intelligent waiver. And in effect, his conclusion here was that Adnan was not aware of this cell tower issue, that an average layperson, certainly someone who didn't even finish high school, would not understand that, and therefore that he didn't knowingly and intelligently waive the issue. That said, there's not a huge amount of case law on that. There are other threads of law in Maryland that might suggest there could be a different analysis. So that's something where really you'd want to look at what the Court of Special Appeals does during oral arguments to see and get a sense of where they might be leaning on that issue. When I think of waiver, I, th- I think of something that has to actively be done, have to actively you know, affirm that you're doing X, Y, or Z. Can you passively 
grant a waiver by not acting or letting the clock run out on something? You can, and that gets back to Judge Welch's conclusion that ineffective assistance is a, a fundamental rights claim. And the other side of the coin for that is certain rights are construed as non-fundamental. And that might be something like, going back to what we just discussed, jury instructions. If jury instructions by itself were the issue, the Maryland courts have found that's not a fundamental right and therefore, you can have a passive waiver where it's not knowing and intelligent. It's just you let the deadline pass. You don't raise that claim. And the state's trying to argue that here, that the same analysis should apply to an ineffective assistance claim. And again, it comes back to not whether or not the cell tower stuff is relevant or what it proves. It's not about a matter of fact. Again, it's looking at a matter of law that Gutierrez, again, should have advised her client in a way that didn't do a harm to him. Well, it's sort of, it's, there's sort of, I guess, three different components to the cell tower issue. All right. One is just the procedural. Was this waived? Which has nothing to do with the merits whatsoever. The second is sort of quasi-substantive. It's to the point you just addressed, which is should Gutierrez have made effective use of that AT&T disclaimer saying incoming calls are unreliable for determining location? And then the third issue is if we're looking at that and saying it's an error, it's not waived, how important in a vacuum is that issue? And then in the context of the trial, how important overall were the pings to the state's case against Adnan? Meaning if we take out that cell tower evidence, is it a house of cards that falls apart? Or is this something like a Jenga piece that you can slide out and the tower still remains standing? Okay, so now for oral arguments in June or July, sometime this summer, there's no new testimony. It's it's arguments just like you'd see at the U.S. Supreme Court or another appellate court. And uh, uh, no new facts. Again, we're just uh, we're just going to be talking about basically whether or not lawyers or judges made errors. Am I right? Yeah, hundred percent correct. This is going to be a legal argument before the court. There's not going to be, say, the sisters who have made claims about Asia testifying. There's not going to be new documentary evidence. It's strictly going to be the attorney general and Justin Brown making arguments on these three issues we've identified. And then, you know, the strong likelihood that the side that doesn't prevail in this appeal will look for relief from the full special court. Right. Yeah. So this is the court of special appeals, which is three judges will form a panel and hear the arguments here. And then the losing party will likely file a petition for writ of certiorari with the Court of Appeals of Maryland, which is basically Maryland's state Supreme Court, and then they would hear the appeal by the losing party. Uh, so are there a lot of uh, cases like Adnan's like still churning through the system? This is not uncommon, is it? It is somewhat uncommon in that we had this remand to have the new PCR hearing. In the days of DNA testing, you see a decent number of cases where you have a reopening based upon DNA testing, where it wasn't done before. But to have a remand based upon an allegation of prosecutorial misconduct, that's pretty rare. Uh, there's another case, which actually there's a podcast starting on it, the Richard Nicholas case, which was also Gutierrez case, which also had a reopening based upon prosecutorial misconduct. But that's that's pretty rare. In the absence of DNA to have new evidence coming in and reexamining the case, that's not something that's typical. Is it likely that it would kick it all the way back to, okay, start a new trial or kick it down to one of the lower appellate courts and relitigate a certain issue? Uh, it's, it's potentially unlimited. As many times as the defense has new evidence, they could seek to reopen the case. But I think in this situation now, we have three plausible scenarios. One is that the appellate courts upheld Judge Welch's ruling 
the case then is sent back down to square one and we have a retrial. Uh, I think probably pretty unlikely because both the prosecution and defense have something to lose. It would be tough for the state to piece together a case if they could even get Jay Wilds to testify. So in that case, probably the likeliest outcome would be the second outcome, which is some type of plea deal, maybe an Alfred plea to time served. The third situation would be the Maryland Appellate Court's reverse Judge Welch, and at that point you'd probably see a non-filing for habeas relief with the federal courts claiming that the state courts in Maryland have clearly erred in applying federal law. Did you listen to S-Town? I have not listened to the whole thing yet. You I have not to, listened to the whole part thing. Of it, yeah. I, did you get to the... Um no, I'm not going to give it away because it's good. I'll just uh, it's it's really good. There's a couple of sort of like probate issues that will come up later on. And although I don't know what you know about Alabama probate law, it might be interesting for your take on what you think about who may ha- might have standing in someone's estate when there's no will. And they've been recorded on radio for hours and hours saying stuff. Right. There, there's a rule of evidence, now, I, at least from what I've heard of the case, called the Dead Man Statute that most states have abolished, but South Carolina still has. I'm not sure if Alabama has it or not, but from what I've at least heard... That might play a role in the case. The, the dead man's law? Is that what it's called? Yeah, dead man's statute. Statute. What is that? It says in some variation, essentially, that if you have a person coming into court and saying that the person who passed away made statements about what they wanted to do with their property that vary from their will or other prior proclamations that that person is not allowed to testify. And essentially the worry is that you'd have a bunch of warring family members come in and say, well, I talked to the decedent five weeks before his death and he said he was leaving me his property. And then someone else saying, well, no, he said he'd leave me his property. I can see where that would start to get to be problematic. Yeah, and that's why those were in place. But the modern trend is there used to be this rule saying broad swaths of witnesses are incompetent to testify. So atheists, criminal defendants themselves, people with felony convictions. But the modern trend is you allow pretty much everyone to testify and then opposing counsel can impeach them. So, Kevin, there's still a chance for Adnan to make bail? Yeah, that that part actually is still kind of alive in a way. They have uh, filed paperwork that would allow them the chance to argue for bail. So this was the thing that Judge Welch had denied. They filed paperwork. So this special three-judge panel will also hear this motion. Now, if they win, it doesn't grant him bail. It would just grant him a bail hearing. So it's still a process that's in play, but it still could work. He he could conceivably be let out on bail, and then he'd want to go home and like really get like all the grime of the prison off of him by slathering his body in Kopari. <laughs> <laughs> he would love, and non say I would love Kopari wait, beauty. Wait, wait. Let me call Robbie right now and confirm with her whether or not Anand Syed would love Kapari beauty. Because she'll know. Everyone would loves Kapari. It is the best thing that's for your skin, the best ultimate multitasker. I do love it. The head-to-toe hydration that takes your skin and hair game to the next level. Remember, it has no sulfates, silicones, GMOs, and stuff. It's 100% organic coconut oil. I know. They go to little family <laughs> coconut farms all throughout the Philippines and throughout the Pacific region. Are you saying it's responsible? It's responsible. I feel better about slathering it all over myself now. Yeah. Because I do. Yeah, slather all you want. They'll make more. 
Laura, we're getting ready for that time of year where... You go on vacation? You go on vacation. Yes. yes. The legs I, get shown. You have yes. to be all nice and smooth. Tell us, are you using your Kapari? Yes, I have been, and I have been putting it all over my feet. There's one that comes in a tube. It's like a balm. It's a little bit That's thicker. That's the coconut balm, yes. Yes, I have been using the coconut balm on my sad, dry winter feet, and it is awesome for them. And I am looking forward to using the coconut shimmer when I go on vacation. You know me, so Kevin. I, I'm loving the Kapari. Loving it. Would you say you're like, like sleeping with an almond joy? It is. I know. Because <laughs> I love it. Say aloha to the best skin and hair of your life with Kapari. Go to kaparibeauty.com slash crime to get 20% off your order. That's Kapari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash crime, crime for 20% off. Kaparibeauty.com slash crime. Smell like an almond joy. You'll love it. What else you got, Kevin? Well, I mean, I don't know if Richard Simmons is actually going to be coming back out in public or not. I think he is. I'm going to say, yeah, he is. But if he chooses to stay at home, he'll feel comfortable knowing that he is well protected from the outside world thanks to his order from (laughs) selectblinds.com. I'm sure that's the first thing he's going to do. Wait a minute. Wait. What's the over-under on the Richard Simmons, Dan Taberski exclusive interview together, like on the Today Show or Entertainment Tonight? That's going to happen, right? I'm on the under on that one. (laughs) I don't think so. I think it's going to happen. Yeah. Now, if you're like me and you feel like you have to choose between getting new blinds or not letting the kids go to college... Those fears end right now because select blinds will not gouge you like those other greedy blind corporations. (laughs) The big blind corporations. Big blinds? Big blinds is after them. (laughs) Their loyal customers seem to agree. If you look at their website, they've got 170,000 five-star reviews. Are we reaching peak blinds? So we we need big blinds? Yes. We want to fight against big blinds. That's right. Select blinds. That's why we got select blinds, man. (laughs) That's called a paradigm shift, son. (laughs) Disrupting the... I can't, I can't go on. <laughs> so it's like blinds. You do it yourself, and but it doesn't mean you're doing it alone. In fact, if you can hang a picture, you can hang your own blinds. They'll help you walk you through how to measure, choose, and install your own window coverings. <laughs> I just want to say, if you're doing it yourself, you actually probably are doing it alone, though, right? Well, no. You're alone at your house, but you're not alone because... <laughs> okay. Because you can check in with their specialists online. Ah, I see. It's a consultancy. Exactly. Ah. Exactly. You're supported in your blind endeavors. Hey, they have over a million happy customers. They do. A million happy customers cannot be wrong. Shop today at selectblinds.com. If you mention our show at checkout, you get free sample swatches of the room darkening blinds or shades of your choice. Absolutely free. Selectblinds.com. Selectblinds. And mention our show at checkout. And our show is Crime Writers On. Dot, dot, dot. Forget the dot, dot, dot. Well, um, I don't know who to blame for this one, but we ended up this week, the three of us, watching a investigation discovery three-part miniseries looking at one of the most sensational murder trials of the decade. In 2011, the jury somehow found Casey Anthony not guilty in the death of her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee Anthony. She had been missing for more than a month before being reported missing to the police, and the toddler's skeletal remains were later discovered in the woods near Casey Anthony and her parents' home. All the while, Casey was photographed partying and seeming otherwise unconcerned about her missing daughter. Investigation Discovery premiered Casey Anthony, an American murder mystery, Despite the extended length of time given to the subject, the miniseries featured the same reenactments and service reporting the network is known for. 
full disclosure, we have been on many Discovery ID series, and we're not saying that's bad. We're just saying that's what it was. Right, Kevin? Yeah. The series Casey Anthony and American Murder Mystery is available online and on demand. Now, Toby, I first of all, I yes. want to say I'm sorry. So this is the second time that you've had to talk about this. It's unbelievable. <laughs> because do you want to just go ahead and plug your appearance in other podcast one more time and tell our listeners where else you talked about this? Uh, yeah. Last week I was on The Blotter Presents with Sarah D. Bunting, and uh, we talked about this Casey Anthony thing. And um, yeah, so this is my second dip into this. <laughs> You sound thrilled. The title of the show, American Mystery, is this a mystery, you think? It's not what I would call a classic mystery. I don't even know what to how to characterize what I watched. Um, <laughs> you don't watch a lot it, of Investigation Discovery, do you, Toby? I, I do not, and uh, I don't think this is going to encourage me to watch it in the future. They certainly didn't seem to think there was much mystery. <laughs> well, Kevin, though, this was a very classic Discovery ID mm -hmm. show, right? Despite the fact that it was in three parts, there was very little that was different from what we typically see on that network. Yeah, and I think, you know, if they're trying to shoot for the kind of documentaries that you get on HBO or Netflix, and, like, we're seeing, you know, what's on the slate this coming spring— from those, you know, those two uh, networks. Yes, things we are stuff. planning to talk about on this podcast. This just seemed like it was a three-hour version of one of their one-hour shows. Right. I will say, and maybe we'll talk about it later, I think the last 10 minutes was basically the only thing worth sticking around Oh, we'll for. talk about that. Yeah. But, right. uh, yeah, I mean, it had the same formula, which relied an awful lot on crime journalists and other stand-ins for announcers pushing the exposition along. Uh, in <laughs> you mean the thing that we usually do when we're on these shows? Yeah. I mean, but, like, <laughs> yes. And See, glass houses, Kevin, right? I, and glass houses, absolutely. <laughs> like, I'm probably on a rerun right now for my deadly little secret doing the same exact thing. But if I had to see Diane Diamond one more time saying, and then they found a horrible discovery. <laughs> and stopping. As if that was, like, her natural sound bite. I probably will try to choke myself with all these lozenges. Now, uh, Laura, one of the things that did surprise me and that I think made this a little bit different than other investigation discovery shows was the participation from so many central figures in this case. Casey Anthony's parents were in it, both of them. The roommate of the ex-boyfriend was in it. There was a juror. Actually, it was an alternate juror, but, you know, we're quibbling, right? Because he was in the courtroom the whole time. <laughs> the judge. Uh, the judge, exactly. The judge surprised me. Yeah. How did you feel when you would see these people who were so directly involved participating in this investigation discovery show? Well, I have to tell you, it took me, it would take me a little bit to to recognize that because I was so distracted by these dramatic introductions of every character mm -hmm. um, <laughs> when they would flip to the person it'd be like this is so and so and I was just so distracted by that one police officer who was sitting and I don't know if it was a barn, was a barn yes <laughs> and I'm like what is this is he in the slaughterhouse like where is he why is why is this where they're making him set um so that that took me for a while. But but you know, the one that surprised me the most was the judge. Yeah. I was just and the judge 
speaking about his personal thoughts about, well, they, you know, I definitely thought, right. And I was just like, whoa. And I'm like, well, I guess Florida's got different rules. I, I don't know. It was interesting to see all the people they got there. Her mother looked extremely different than the last time. I, I actually had to go back and look to, I was like, has she done something with her hair? And, and then this whole like lady in black outfit thing she had going on. So I, I think I was more distracted by the introductions of these characters and the setups and the dramatic lighting and the heavy makeup, which for me took away from the actual content because that to me was just too distracting. Yeah, but all of these shows are like that. Now we've all, uh, except for Toby, yes. been on these shows. And Kevin, you and I in combined have been on what, like a dozen of them yeah, probably? At least, yeah. yeah. And typically the way it works is a little like inside baseball is they're in our area filming a few episodes or a few segments and usually it's a freelance crew. Yeah. Most um, of the time it's about a story that we have written. So Sometimes. So we're yep. you know a, a legitimate expert in part of the production. Right. And so they they book the day that they're going to film this mm-hmm. and a couple of times when we started doing it they were like let's film at your house and I later decided like I'm never doing that again because it's just very disruptive. You mean because the, to make it quiet we had to turn the sub pump off and yes. the basement oh, flooded. Like, yeah, that. out, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, there's that. So basically they, they set up like at a hotel, like in a conference room and they set up their backdrop in yeah. a portable studio yeah. and they bring in all the people they're going to talk to and you sit in front of a backdrop like in a little director's chair and they do this very tight shot of your face so you actually do have to mm-hmm. I mean I've never had my makeup done but I always have to do it myself yeah. they ask you like a list of 12 questions or whatever and then they'll ask you them again then they use your exposition to stitch together the narrative now what was different about this I don't want to say it was different it was but I also found it distracting was I was very much looking at the backgrounds of where the exposition people were sitting. There's a guy from National Enquirer who was, he was totally I, in a library. He was in a library? Because I looked at every, all those books on the bookcase and they all seemed to have that little white tag on the <laughs> yes. spine. Yes. You know, like where they would have like the Dewey Decimal number. And Diane Diamond was like in a prop warehouse or I something. I don't know where Visually, it was very different. And the cop was in a barn, and then the parents, I think, were in their own house. Yes. That other cop got introduced. He was at a a shooting range, but he wasn't, like, behind where you shoot. He was, like, sort of halfway in between where you shoot and where the target is. It's like, why don't you get in there and stand between where I would have the gun and the target and look really mean? Just go ahead. Yeah, Yeah, I'm just going to sprinkle some more of these empty casings all over the place to make it more interesting. Well, I was in the side of a uh, Chinese restaurant in a hotel when I did mine, so that was that was pretty bad. And their uh, all their wiring kept like like shorting out the fuses, so all the electricity kept going off every time we started filming because <laughs> they had so many wires hooked up. It was just like overloading things, and then I'd be like, "Oh my god!" Well, the, there was like a weird period of time where Kevin and I were just constantly being booked for these things, and so I had like my two TV jackets, uh-huh. and it was always like at an inconvenient time, so I would just keep like my two TV jackets like in the car. And it's like, I got to run out from work or I'm going grocery shopping, but I'm going to go do like the TV jacket thing. And I was looking at um, Diane Diamond and Jane Velez Mitchell, who was the other person. Uh And I'm like, but Jane Velez Mitchell was actually a TV reporter. She was. She gave gave me a blurb for my first book. I know she did. Uh, And, you know, I I, I actually didn't mind the Diane Diamond stuff as much as you did. Let's move on, like beyond the production stuff. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the case because there were some things that I either didn't know or didn't remember or maybe... When this case was going on, I've always been a little bit more aware of sort of like the um, 
the machinations behind why some cases become big news versus mm-hmm. others. And obviously this one, there are these people called fixers behind the scenes that hook up local stories. They they talk to the parents and the family and then they, they're the ones who broker the deals between those people and the news outlets. So I was always very aware that like this case made national news because Casey Anthony was attractive so maybe among that, I either wasn't paying attention or, or just missed this. But there were a few details that I missed that I thought were really interesting. And one of them was Casey Anthony's fake job at Universal Studios. Yeah, that was bizarre. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I think I paid attention to this case a lot when it was first out. I remember I had to stop because it seemed like it was Nancy Grace all the time and I just couldn't take it anymore. But I remember the Universal thing. I, what I liked about this show was I didn't realize that she actually went there and continued to push her way in and be like, no, my boss's extension is such and such and such and such. And then like walked to a dead end and was like, yeah, I don't work here. It proved like, it, it demonstrated that she was willing to take a lie absolutely as far as she possibly could. What did you could. think would happen that at some point the police would be like, okay, well, you've proved it now. Let's just leave. Like, what did you think yeah. was going to happen? You know, it was like there, there's a, a Seinfeld where George is taking his dead fiance's parents. Like, he's trying to get out of going to some meeting. So he says he's going to his house in the Hamptons and the parents like call him on it. And so he's like going to take him to the Hamptons and they're like asking him about his house. And he has like two solariums and stuff and they keep going and going and then he finally has to break. That's what it reminded me of. Did you remember this whole thing about, you know, Casey Anthony's dad being a cop and the parents involvement and people rioting outside their house, like literally holding signs up to them as they would walk from their house to the car? Is this something that you that you remembered when you thought about this case? I, I have to tell you, I honestly, until I watched this thing a couple of weeks ago, I had no idea. Like, I obviously knew who Casey Anthony was and recognized her, but I didn't know any of the details of the case or I just knew it was something about being a bad parent. So, no, I didn't remember it, but it, you know, it, it, it's in keeping with something that we've talked about before, which is these people, you know, without a whole lot of information are able to become very, very sure that they understand the truth and are willing to act on it. And it's strange. And I don't I don't understand that psychology, really, that that you would feel so certain based on watching some TV news or whatever or listening to a podcast. <laughs> yeah, just like take kind of like vigilante action. It's 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 bizarre to me, but I didn't remember that. I didn't follow it too closely, but I was sort of surprised and yet not surprised. Now, one of the missing voices in this TV show that would have made a more complete picture And, you know, I always think the reason that I call the staircase the Citizen Kane of true crime is because you do have uh, the prosecution and the defense involved. And the missing piece here in terms of talking to the camera point of view stuff was the defense. Right. Right. We saw a lot of courtroom stuff and we saw this relatively green kind of hot shot trial attorney who was described by one of the experts as being the person you hire if you're in big trouble, but not Mm -hmm. necessarily seasoned in front of a jury. And then we see this thing that he does that I think has come up before on this show where he lays a bunch of stuff out in his opening arguments. Casey Anthony's father molested her and Casey Anthony's daughter, Kaylee, died by drowning in the family pool. And then the father was the one who hid the body Dun, dun, dun. And then presents no evidence to support either one of those theories during the trial. Kevin, thoughts? 
Well, it was a bold gambit. If the prosecution did one thing right on that is that they called the father as the first witness. So right after that bombshell, they bring him up and give the defense the opportunity to, okay, accuse him, make the case, go after him. him. Oh, yeah. And they never do. Right. And in a way, it did push that whole thing aside. It never ended up being the thing that hung over the trial like it's going to come it's coming it's coming it's they're going to bring him up and you know oh the the father isn't coming up they're hiding him they they basically just threw him out there and basically called bias's bluff on that now laura why isn't there a rule against bringing up something in opening arguments that then you never actually show at trial this is something that I, i know we've talked about it before uh, like, why is that okay or considered okay? I honestly don't know. <laughs> um, it, it was frustrating, and it was frustrating in this case, you know. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, obviously, in your closing argument, you have to refer to your theory has to adhere to th- things that came in as evidence and testimony. So I, I'm not sure what the rule is. I have to say, though, on this attorney, I was getting so annoyed a couple things that went on with him, and one of the things I found kind of odd was, you know, her parents were witnesses in the case Mm -hmm. but yet you hear at one point her mother having these discussions like tactical discussions with the attorney about the theory of the case and what he's going to do and to me that really I feel like there should have been some lines drawn there you know when I had obviously you can give permission for your attorney to speak to people about your case but if you're a witness that really sort of I think muddies the waters in that they're not necessarily going to be as impartial as you would want them to be or, you know, unblemished when they take the witness stand because they know your theory and where you want them to go. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And Laura, I I think some of the if there was like a really compelling part of this documentary, docudrama, what is it called? Docu-reality, docu-whatever it's called. The jailhouse visits with Casey Anthony and her parents where you'd see them, this sort of split screen with her and her parents. That dynamic was really interesting. And the difference between where the mom was and where the dad was in terms of her culpability and it almost feels like they knew something really bad had happened. It was weird. No, there was there's a lot of weirdness with this family. And I had just seen, I don't know if anyone else saw it. This was in the news. There was like an independent news article somebody had forwarded me a few weeks ago that had information about the psychologist or psychiatrist that had examined Casey Anthony. And there was a lot more information in that report that was in this article about the dynamic between her and the father. So when I was watching this, that's what I was thinking about was he was kind of standoffish more so than the mother. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of allegations about just this ongoing abuse from a very young age of her by him. And then the most scandalous thing that was in there was the, the suggestion that he may have actually been the father. Really? Yes. I feel like the dad was a cop and he was just more straight up and the mom was more entwined with Casey. Like the, her relationship was more intertwined. I don't know. I, I just don't get that vibe with the dad. I feel like he was really smeared during this whole thing. Tell me what were you going to say? I, I had a question, which was, so she was living with her parents during this time, right? Yes. Right. I mean, why didn't they think it was weird when they didn't see You know, that was really kind of left out of the documentary. But what happened was, if I recall, is that she, day to day to day, would just make up a reason. She would sort of pretend like she had just been with Kaylee, but had just dropped her off somewhere. Or she would... 
say that, you know, Kaylee was staying with a friend or that she would just every single day sort of make it like you just missed her. Am I, I right? hadn't seen Casey either for uh, an extended period before that 911 call where all the cops come. she was out a come. lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if I, I thought that there was, there was a reference that they hadn't seen Casey in several weeks, and so they also wanted to know where Kaylee was. What did you think of the difference between the, the mom's point of view and the dad's point of view? Are you with me that the dad is a stand-up guy who just found himself in the situation and the mom has this intertwined relationship with Casey? Yeah. Or do you feel yeah. like uh, there's something else going on? No, no, like- no I, I agree with that. I, I don't think the dad was an abuser, and he certainly, you know, you wonder why did he try to commit suicide? If he felt guilty because he had done something, would he have done that? Possibly. But would he also not feel as much despair as if he had come to the conclusion in his heart that he realized his, his daughter had killed his granddaughter? Would he also not feel that same despair? Now, Toby, knowing, I think, less about the case than the rest of us and watching this, I don't want to ask you to speculate, Toby, because I know you don't like to, but what do you think about Casey Anthony? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I it, based on this documentary where everybody is absolutely certain that she's guilty, she certainly comes off that way. She comes off as, you know, a party girl. I mean, that's definitely the way they're trying to portray her. You know, they're trying to make the case that sort of being unburdened by a child was something that she enjoyed and celebrated. Yeah. So, I, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't come off well. Do you think that's sexist? Because part of me, like when I look at this story, I see, let's just say, for instance, that the Google searches for chloroform are legit, right? That it was Casey Anthony who looked up chloroform, okay? That her mom was covering for her. Chloroform is not a murder weapon. Chloroform is a knockout tool, right? right? So I think it's not illogical to think, oh, hey, maybe she just wanted to be able to do X, Y, or Z, and it was like... In the same vein that some parents, and I'm not saying this is the same, but the same way, like, you have a fussy toddler and you're going to go on an airplane and you might do, like... Give him a little brandy. Tylenol PM, you know, baby version, right. to sort of, like, you know, make the flight easier. And maybe she was doing extreme... I don't know. But I feel so, I feel kind of like jumping to she wanted to be childless. Immediate. It feels very much like the Justin Ross Harris theory of the crime to me, like... It's impossible to be a sexual and young a human being who wants to have experiences beyond sort of like the con without also being like a murderer who's planning a first degree. I don't know. There's something about that. that just it's kind of bothers me in a weird way. Well, I think it's an easy narrative, right? I mean, here's this attractive young woman who likes to party and her kid ends up dead. She's acting in a way that, you know, societally we do not picture or approve of mothers of toddlers acting. And then you get like these harpies like Nancy Grace and Jane Velez Mitchell just with absolute certainty playing up this narrative that I think it's hard. The evidence is largely circumstantial, right? Mm -hmm. The certainty with which people were talking about her guilt seems unwarranted And again, I don't think if she hadn't fit sort of the stereotypical idea of sort of a party girl who didn't want a baby, you know, I'm not sure that that would have that would have caught on the same way because it it certainly wasn't the evidence. The evidence was largely circumstantial, but there was physical evidence. 
There was the fact that there very likely was a dead body in the trunk of Casey Anthony's car. There was the fact that Kaylee Anthony was found with items from the house all around her, a blanket from her room, a laundry basket from her house that showed that whoever was disposed of the body had also been in the house. So it wasn't 100 percent circumstantial. There was some physical evidence. You know, there was also a very, very compelling narrative Enough, I think, that even if I were not 100% buying the story the prosecution was telling, like, I don't want to quote Michael Flynn here, but, like, there are dots and I can connect them, right? Mm -hmm. Laura, why did this jury acquit Casey Anthony? What do you think? I I don't know, because I I think, I mean, it seems like everybody was astounded, right down to the judge um, that they acquitted. You know, I think maybe it was just the cohesiveness of the message from both sides. And they're like, you know, the defense had put out several things in the beginning, and then that wasn't where they went. They didn't address those things. So it seems like maybe the message on both sides wasn't streamlined enough, or maybe it was just... I don't know, because in watching this, I can see, you know, I, I can connect the dots. I But, you know, people that are on the jury, they're in a different position. And it's the weight of that responsibility is pretty heavy, especially in a case like this. You know, having been on a jury, not oh, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> 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 the timber taken trial. <laughs> Kevin was about to cough when he said that, so he came off as 18 times more patronizing than he actually was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I think you don't know what the potential punishments are, but where you could envision somebody going to jail, like you want to be sure. I mean, when the alternate juror talks about what the prosecution was not able to produce for them, I don't know if they knew that it was a capital case, but they must have known that, that was a possibility. Like, what's the threshold of you being willing to okay the murder of somebody by the state? So we know that Casey Anthony was acquitted. Right. We know that she's now living with an investigator for the defense. Werner Spitz? No. <laughs> Patrick McKenna. Although Werner Spitz did make a fun little appearance in this. And we he should did. mention Werner Spitz is the guy being sued by the younger brother of Jean Benet Ramsey for his claims on the CBS documentary that we also uh, thought were outrageous, the claims that were made. But anyway, so we know she was acquitted. She just gave an interview recently in which she sort of talked about not really knowing what happened herself, which was kind of bizarre. But Kevin, I know that you're sort of chomping at the bit to talk about the revelations in the last 10 minutes of this documentary. And I... I think we're sort of beyond spoiler alert with this, right? Like, yeah. it just is what it is. Can you just talk about what happened in the last 10 minutes? Yeah, I mean, we learned two things. One is that mom and dad are now split on whether or not their daughter, Casey, killed their granddaughter. But Kaylee. they're still together. They're still together, even though they have different views on this, what seemed like a very big thing in their relationship. Mom definitely believes Casey's story, that it was an accident, and they're still in touch. She believes that Kaylee drowned in the pool? That she believes that version of the story? She does. So she believes her husband was culpable in some way? I don't I don't know. Okay. I'm just I, curious. I, I, yeah, I she believes okay, she believes the bullshit, all right? So <laughs> can we leave it at that? She's drinking the Kool-Aid. She's drinking the Kool-Aid <laughs> on that. 
the father, you know, who uh, certainly seemed to, you know, be wearing his emotions right out on his sleeve the whole time. And by the way, who looks like a character actor in a Martin Scorsese film. He does. (laughs) He has come to the belief that his daughter did kill and is criminally responsible for the death of Kaylee. And what he believes happened was, you know, based on all these other little pieces that had gotten dropped, they all come together in the last minute here. Casey's original story was that Kaylee was with the nanny, Zanny. Zanny the nanny. Yeah, Z- I forget how the. Uh, yes. Yeah. So Zanny the nanny. She's Kaylee's with Zanny the nanny. And she would tell her friends all the time when they would say, "Where is Kaylee?" She would say, "With Zanny the nanny." That was a joke, right? Zanny the nanny. Right. And uh, he says, you know, I noticed in the days before that she died that. Kaylee would come over to the house and would be sleeping for eight, nine, for 10 hours. She had black rings under her eyes. She was always very drowsy. And that he suspected that maybe Casey was giving his granddaughter something to sleep so that she would sleep for a long time and give Casey long stretches where she could go have a good time. Where she could go have a good time. He also reveals that the kids had access to Xanax. And the street name for Xanax is Zanny. So Zanny the Nanny, that fits. Right. That whole thing, that is the most plausible thing I heard in the entire, that, that, that the cops said or that the prosecutors said the defense said. That is the thing that sounds the most probable to me. It does. And it also sounds like there's a, now setting up a reason for the chloroform search that maybe she lost access to the Xanax or maybe she needed something else. You know, it just sort of does kind of fit. And it makes a better, I think, more plausible story Yeah. that if the prosecution had told at trial, instead of relying on a piece of duct tape with no DNA on it, Mm-hmm. I think that their fixation on the duct tape was a mistake. I don't know. I don't know. That's just what I think about the whole thing. All right. Well, um, I don't know what to say. It was kind of weird that we watched an investigation discovery show for this podcast. But I guess we should do the thing that we do. And uh, Toby Ball, would you recommend that our listeners watch an American <laughs> murder mystery, Casey Anthony, on Discovery ID? Thumbs up, thumbs down, or thumbs sideways? What do you think, Toby? I, I cannot give a big enough thumbs down. Uh, <laughs> Why is that? It was really bad. I, it's just there. It just ticked off so many boxes of things that I just you know the, these terrible recreations where they have it in sort of fuzzy focus and sometimes you're not sure if you're watching a recreation or you're watching the real people and sometimes there's a recreation going on while real people are talking and. It was awful. Says the guy who's never seen a Discovery ID show. What do you think, Laura? I'm going to go with thumbs sideways because, you know, it wasn't horrible for the type of show that it was. But my thing is, you know what, when this case was in the news, when this case was happening, I pretty much learned everything I really wanted to learn about the case at that time. I didn't necessarily feel the need to revisit it. So I question like, why revisit it now? But if there's somebody out there who doesn't know all the details, who wasn't watching Nancy Grace or all the other cable news shows when this is happening, it's a good overview of the case. I just question why now? I'm going to go with thumbs southwest between sideways and down, only because I feel like if our listeners are familiar with the investigation discovery format and they're used to watching things like Wives with Knives and Deadly Sins, etc., they might like this, right? Because this was actually better than a lot of those things mm-hmm. that are also on Investigation Discovery. And it's about a case that you may have forgotten some of the details about or, or want to know more about. And there was some compelling tape 
but I don't want to say it was good. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I'm giving it a southwest, halfway between, sideways and down. What about wow. you, Kevin? Way to be decisive. Well, I'm going to give it a thumbs down, like Toby. I mean, I think the best part about it is the thing I just told you was the end. That was interesting. <laughs> just fast forward to that part. Just found, if you know the case, I think. Or just listen to this. When ID, you don't need to watch it now. <laughs> <laughs> when Investigation Discovery tries to do these things on cases that people know, like the time they did the thing on Adnan, it seemed to be for those of us who had seen it, knew about it, that this was just such a surface reporting of it. It's almost like we know more about this case than you do as the producers. I get like. In this three-part investigation, like, there's no fucking investigation here. <laughs> there's not an investigation, you know? it's a, The only thing that, that was new was what the father had to say, which came at the end. Somewhat redeems their work, but I don't think it's worth spending three hours on. It was long. On. It was long. Could you at least, like, tell, what is Casey Anthony up to these days? Right. I mean, she doesn't have any money, and she's maybe sleeping with her attorney to pay off all of her legal debt. No, she's not. That's what the allegation was. She's living with her defense investigator. Yeah, Yeah. but that was, was that that the same investigator who testified that she was giving three to oh. the attorney. It can't be that. Sorry, that was graphic are... information. <laughs> yeah. and that, I found that like to be totally ridiculous. I mean, you talk about... Sexists. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like slut-shaming her. I a, was like not surprised that somebody who had an axe to grind would come up with something like that. But I was surprised that they were willing to air it, give it as much weight as they did. And the only reason why they did it was to smear her. Well, yeah. it plays into her her public persona as being the slutty, flighty. Yes. And by the way, she might girl, be yeah. a baby killer and she might be somebody who enjoys sex. But the fact that she enjoys sex does not make her a baby killer. Like that's those are like two separate it's, things. No, but and that's offensive actually in a way to sort of say that like those things are aligned. I don't know. I have a problem with that. And like, you know, what is gonna happen today with Casey Anthony? You know, like she's gonna move on. If she moves on, what's she gonna do with her life? She, is she gonna get a new look? If she does, would she like to subscribe to Le Tote? Oh, God. Le Tote, the fashion subscription box that comes to your door with brand name clothing and accessories for one low monthly fee. Yes, she should subscribe to Le Tote. Yeah, so now you can rent up to $700 worth of fashion from designer brands like Free People, Nike, Rebecca Minkoff, and more all month long. Rebecca, you've been getting your Le Totes. I've been burning through my Latotes. I've gotten like three Latotes in the last like week and a half because Mm -hmm. I get them, I open them up, I wear all the stuff, and then I like immediately put it back in the mailbox with the flag up so I can immediately style my new Latote and get a new one. It's like you wake up every day and have something new to wear. It's really fun. Right. So you've worked kind of with the stylist. They give you some ideas on different things like uh, tops and accessories and jewelry. Yeah. They send it to you. And they figure out what your body looks like based on what you've liked from other Latote, what you haven't liked, and then they send you stuff that you like even more the next time. That's right. It's it's very much like the Netflix, the old school Netflix with the oh, DVDs. Yeah. Of your closet. That's right. Once you're done with it, put it back in an envelope and you'll get a new one. Exactly. Hang on to it for you four weeks. You don't have to wash That's it. That's fine. You don't have to wash it. <laughs> you're borrowing it. It's like borrowing your best friend's clothes. Yes. So go to Latote. L-E-T-O-T-E dot com and get started for as little as $39 a month and you'll get 50% off your first month when you enter. 50% off? Yeah, 50% off 
when you enter promo code CRIME at checkout. My favorite promo code, CRIME. Yeah, so once again, you'll sign up. You'll receive your complete customized tote within days. Wear the things that you like. Buy it if you really like it. Send the rest back. Get a whole new set. Every week, you'll be going to work with a whole new wardrobe. People will think, what did she do to deserve all of that? She subscribed to Latote using the promo code CRIME. That's, That's what she right. did. That's right. Wear what you it's want. Good. I did. Laura, do you have Latote? I do. I, I used our promo code and got my own Latote, and I, I yes, love it. there's one. Yes. <laughs> it's so fun because I'm definitely bored with everything in my closet, but I didn't really want to like go buy a bunch of new clothes. And so I was like, ah, oh, I need something for Easter to wear to church. And so I got a nice shirt with a little oh, coordinating necklace. So New Hampshire. Yeah. And so, But the thing that was awesome was I sent it back in the little bag, and I think that as soon as they scan your bag at the post yes. office, it must, it must trigger, because as soon as that happened, it said, you can pay pick your next toad out. And I'm like, there's no way they got it already. So it's, it's, it's very quick. They're not fucking yeah. around. You're getting your new clothes. I literally put it in the mailbox today, put the flag up. And then like, I know like an hour after the lady came to get our mail, like it was like, you can style your new Latote. And I was like, you yes. bet your ass I can. It was awesome. Yeah. So wear what yeah. you want, return everything in the mail when you're done and repeat all month long. Do it once, do it five times. Same low price. I've like, been doing it like twice a week. Again, it's letote.com. <laughs> <laughs> Enter code CRIME and feel fabulous with fashion delivered right to your door. letote.com. Enter code CRIME. CRIME. Anything else, Kevin? Yeah, I want to tell you about something that I do recommend people watch. I know you do. You love it. Amazon's acclaimed crime series, Bosch, Bosch. is back for a third season. Not the dishwasher, the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Titus Welliver stars as Detective Harry Bosch. Titus Welliver is like the ultimate... Hey, it's that guy? Hey, it's that guy. <laughs> but he's really good in the show. You, you, you know, you're like, oh, that guy, yeah, he was in Deadwood, and he was in Lost, and he was in Gone, Baby Gone. I wonder how many episodes of Law & Order he's been in. I don't have to look that Probably up. Probably like 17. <clears throat> Probably. And he is like so perfect as Detective Harry Bosch. He is the honest cop driven by a dark past. He's like Laura Bricker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I've loved the first two seasons of Bosch. And the thing that you pointed out was like none of these shows except for Bosch has ever really captured Los Angeles. Oh my God, the atmosphere is great. Harry Bosch's house, like I want to murder him just so I can move into his house. It's yeah. beautiful. Like when you say like New York, you might close your eyes and you might think Times Square right. at night. The if I said Las Vegas. of Bosch if, are very LA. They do a very good job showing LA But if I show. say LA and you close your eyes, what do you, you picture sunshine, right? Daytime. I don't know. Right? This is like it shows it at night. It's not old school gritty like Gotham. No. It's this completely different feel. It's something unlike you've seen anywhere they else. They do a good job showing different neighborhoods in LA, giving you a sense of, like you want to look it up like on Wikipedia to see like where's that? Like it's great. It's very good. Yeah. And so all this time uh, Bosch has been haunted by his mother's murder. And we saw sort of the sad conclusion to that. His prostitute? Yes. Yeah, he finally found <laughs> out who did it and then found out the guy's dead. Oh. So Bosch also finds in this season himself implicated in the death of a serial killer that <gasps> he's been investigating. So Bosch must navigate the dangerous waters of a police department that believes he's guilty while working with a partner who is no longer sure he can trust him. Oh. Bosch will fight to prove his innocence even as he pursues a dangerous group of ex-Special Forces assassins willing to kill <laughs> anyone who gets in their way. Jesus Christ, Bosch, what are you like getting Toby's into? like life. <laughs> I know. Against the glamour and seediness of Los Angeles, Bosch will risk anything to clear his name while bringing down the murderous crime ring, no matter how many rules he has to break to do it. He might break some rules. Yeah, He's so, Bosch. Yeah, so if you Damn like, it. If you like the Michael Connelly novels, you know Bosch. Check it out now. Stream season three now on Amazon Prime.
I am so excited that we have like a TV show sponsoring our podcast. The meta-ness of that is blowing my goddamn mind right now. Hey, we're the crime writers. All right, now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the the week. week. (laughs) No. That could could be the sound effect. The crime of the week is Kevin not going to the doctor and getting some drugs. That's what I say. No, you have leftover drugs in the medicine cabinet that I got six months ago. (laughs) It's not the same thing. Zanny than Nanny. All right. In Austin, Texas, neighboring businesses weren't sure what was going on at Jade Massage Parlor. Not until a shared sewage pipe got stopped up. That's when a plumber found hundreds of used condoms clogging the works. Hundreds. Investigators suspected the massage parlor was a front for a prostitution ring. Suspected. And the the John's rubbers were being flushed down the toilet. When police raided the business, they found several naked men and $60,000 in cash. Officers arrest... Is that true? That's not true. That is, is that, true. Is that the real name? Yes. Oh. It's, it's it's wrong. Officers <laughs> arrested Juan Wang and charged her with running a prostitution enterprise. See, they got the Juan Wang. You hey. can't run a prostitution Wait, ring without at least Juan Wang. What? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you're gonna say. Did they find like any women there, or was it just naked guys in condoms? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, here's my question for you, panel. If the cops were to check your plumbing or your septic tank, as the case probably is, what crime would they think had been committed in your house? Gosh, it's it's nothing very interesting. Um, The most interesting thing I can think of is our poor anxious cat, Zelda, who's the social media shy, life shy cat, is just a cat that is so... She finds herself in the wrong situations. Like she gets out of the house and locked out for three weeks. She got locked in the utility room last week. And when I found her, there was she had like pulled all the insulation out. So she likes to drink out of the toilet. So it is possible <laughs> that she could just fall in the toilet and we could be <laughs> accused of cat aside. Bullshit. They're going to find a bunch of squirrel arms in your septic system. <laughs> well, that too. That too. What about you, Toby? Are you on sewer or septic? I'm on septic. All right. So what would the cops find in your septic tank? And uh, what would they think the crime that had been committed in your house as a result of finding that? My guess would be they would suspect us of cat shearing. (laughs) (laughs) Is there cat hair in your septic tank? We've got a lot of cat hair. It gets everywhere. I assume it would get washed out and then sucked into our sewage. Well, it's a, it's not dissimilar from what I think we would be accused of. And I'm going to go with Wookiee murdering because um, <laughs> I don't know if you know me, guys, but I've got a lot of hair. Like I am a hairy, hairy person with like a giant big head of hair. And as Kevin can attest to, just the clogs and like the drain hair and like the hair it's everywhere. It's like spaghetti. It's disgusting, yeah. right? So it's like. Chewbacca got murdered in our house. I'm guessing that would be the crime we'd be accused of. What do you think, Kevin? I think investigators would go into the septic system and they would see all those tissues and they would say, I bet there are two teenagers in this house with a strong internet connection. (laughs) All right, we are definitely going to end it on that note. Oh, God. Uh, Laura Bricker, before we sign off for the night, uh, is there a cat of the week this week? Um, There is not a cat of the week. I'm going to be equal opportunity (gasps) now, people. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. What are you going to say? Okay. 
Well, we have Charlie the Superman dog. Yes! With little red paws. But I'm also conflicted by Shira Viva. I'm not sure what her real name is, but she's one of our favorite followers who has a bird, Buddy Robin Redbreast, eating out of her hand because we have become big bird watchers this spring. So um, those are our two animals of the week this week. Animals of the week. I love it. And Laura Bricker, people want to send you their nominations for Equal Opportunity Animals of the Week. (laughs) How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if people want to tweet to you about your cat shearing empire, maybe order some yarn so they can make sweaters out of your cat hair. Yeah. Yeah, How can they reach you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if our listeners want to tweet to you and uh, berate you for shaming my teenage sons on a podcast that tens of thousands of people listen to, how can they reach you on Twitter? I'm at one wang. (laughs) (laughs) And that's one, the number one. (laughs) And if you want to tweet to me or find me on Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. This show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And you can always send us an email or voice memo at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Don't forget to head over to our website, buy stuff using our Amazon link, sign up for our newsletter. We promise we'll get one out shortly with all the stuff we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. Before you close your podcast app, leave us an iTunes review. It makes a huge difference. And check out These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. Our handsome line producer, his name is Henry Lavoy. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Square Egg Studio at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the closet in our basement, formerly known as Studio C. On behalf of all the crime writers, we will see you in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. All right, we're done. Cool. I got to get started clogging up that toilet with a bunch of condoms. A reminder that Bosch is back for a third season. Tyus Welliver is Detective Harry Bosch, an honest cop driven by a dark past who is obsessed with punishing criminals no matter what the cost. Based on the best-selling novels by Michael Conley, stream season three now on Amazon Prime. Yeah!